All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back. I have a great guest today. Uh, very happy you decided to be on the show. Very happy to uh, pick his brain today about like different training styles that go against kind of like the standard of how people would, would structure a lot of their workouts today. Uh, so his name is Doug Brignoli. Uh, very well accomplished. I'm not going to list his laundry list of accomplishments here. Uh, you could easily find his stuff online. And uh, today what we're going to go over is a lot of times when structuring a workout routine, there are like base fundamental lifts, which have been used for ages and ages, uh, you know, like the barbell back squat, barbell deadlift, like the flat bench, incline bench, pull-ups and dips. And you pretty much see those in a lot of routines. But in my opinion, you know, like uh, given the fact that there's so much direct instruction and indirect work that has to be done on the back end to make sure all those lifts are done very, very safely. And then the way they're incorporated into, you know, like a macro, micro, and mesocycle has to be well thought out as well. And the fact that, you know, I mean, just to give a little bit of context to this podcast, we'll be talking about how to kind of like aesthetically enhance your physique for the average person. It could be uh, a lot of times, if not properly applied, a lot more damage than you get in return for your body. So I thought I would invite you as a guest just to kind of give people the background on that and give people, uh, you know, as McGill would say, there's no free lunch for any advantage you gain somewhere, you gain a disadvantage somewhere else. And a lot of people, I feel don't understand that, like, oh, just because their performance is increasing, or their muscle mass is increasing, that doesn't mean they're losing a lot of other stuff on the other end, such as, you know, deteriorating their joints, causing un unnecessary trauma in their body, which you really don't realize until you're like 30s, 40s, and definitely your 50s. And then you're like, oh, man, I should have definitely done all that differently. And it's a little bit like too late oftentimes at that point, but yeah, please take over, kind of share your thoughts on that. And uh, we'll kind of just wing it as, as the conversation goes on. Okay. Um, so thank you for having me on here. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, I guess you could say my approach is unconventional, um, but um, as I explain these things, most people start to think, well, it makes a lot of sense. It's very logical what you're saying. It's, you can't refute it on the basis of it not being logical or sensible. So basically you said something that was interesting. You said, you know, that you, a lot of these basic lifts require a lot of information on the back end to make sure you're doing them right. Um, and, and the truth is that even when you do some of those exercises right, perfectly, they still have a greater cost than return on your investment. So um, my book is called The Physics of resistance exercise. So physics kind of is at the heart of this. Um, and then biomechanics is biology and mechanics. So it's not just mechanics. In other words, I wouldn't go to a structural engineer and ask him what the best way to work my pecs would be, right? Because he might know levers and forces and et cetera, math. But there's biology, there's physiology, there's neurology. There's anatomy, there's things that, you know, have to be incorporated into the whole picture to fully understand what's going on. So what I, what I did is I basically boiled it down to there being 16 factors that basically are a checklist. Now, not all 16 of those factors apply in every exercise in every case because um, some joints flex, some joints extend. Right, so there's a factor there that's different. You know, for example, if you're talking about the bicep, the bicep connects to, you know, uh, inserts into the forearm just below the elbow. 
And when the elbow is straight, it's pulling on that forearm mostly parallel to it. But when it's bent, it's pulling mostly perpendicular to it. Right? Well, that's a difference of mechanical advantage and disadvantage. It does not happen on extension muscles, which are always at mechanical disadvantage. They're always pulling on their joint parallel to the lever they're moving. So the point is that these 16 factors function very much like a checklist, very, very much like if you were going to build an airplane, you would go get principles of aviation and you would have to know that for a plane to be flight worthy, or let me just say optimally flight worthy, <laughs> it has to be this wide and this wingspan and this wing tilt if the plane weighs this and these, so there's, and the same is true for the body because the body is basically a machine. It's, come, it's built up of joints, which are pivots and muscles, which are pulleys and, <clears throat> and the levers, you know, are the limbs. And so, um, all the physics principles as they would apply in anywhere else, building a bridge or building a crane or whatever, apply exactly the same. So um, let me just talk first about the, bar, the barbell squat. So what I would say when I'm talking about a barbell squat is, um, let us for the moment just assume that your objective is to develop the quadriceps and the glutes, or more broadly, the knee extensors and the hip extensors. And that's your goal. And I distinguish that from saying you're a power lifter. Uh, if you're a power lifter, the objective is to lift, squat the most amount of weight that you can squat. And it may not be to develop the quadriceps and the gluteus, right? Mm -hmm. And you might not care about spinal loading and spinal risk. All you care about is getting that first place trophy in that powerlifting meet. So let's just set that aside. Let's just focus on the person who says um, they want to build their body. They want to build their quads and their glutes. And Shortly after this, I'll, I'll have to tell you that we conflate those two sometimes inappropriately. Mm -hmm. um, a guy might go to the gym thinking I want to build my body up and then he gets caught up with the buddies that are there and how much can you squat, how much can you bench, which is taking him in a different direction, um, in a direction that's not productive for muscle building, but has a much higher risk of injury. And so that, mm -hmm. at that point, you'd have, you'd have to start asking, you know, what am I doing this for? Uh, am I just doing this for ego satisfaction? Am I just doing this, you know, to see if I can beat Joe at the gym? Because, you know, that's in the big picture, that's a fairly insignificant goal um, for the cost that you could very well incur. So keeping in mind that all limbs are levers, the lower leg is a lever being operated by the quadricep. The upper leg lever, the femur, is a lever that's being operated by the glutes primarily. And then the torso is a lever. And that is being operated mostly by the erector spinae, but also to some degree by the glutes. So when you do a squat, you should be asking yourself a simple question. Are each of these three limbs, or let's just say your goal is glutes and quads, are each of these two muscle groups getting the best that they can get, the best stimulation they can get, um, for the least cost. So that's part of the 16 factors. One of them would be full range of motion. Am I getting full range of motion? Am I getting early phase loading? Am I getting alignment? All these things are, are, are part of the 16 factors. So the, 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 the basic rule in levers is that all levers, let's just take a pendulum on a, on a grandfather clock. 
all levers are neutral when they are parallel to the direction of resistance, which of course, in that case would just be gravity, right? So if you're talking about cable resistance, you're creating a different direction of resistance by the cable, right? And if you're talking about a cam operated machine, you've got yet another direction of resistance. So there's other things that influence the direction of resistance. But when you're just talking about simple free weight gravity, pulling straight down vertically, a pendulum is neutral when it's parallel to gravity. Neutral meaning that whatever muscle is controlling that lever doesn't have to work at all, right? So um, if you were doing a, 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 let's say a standing dumbbell curl, <clears throat> before you start the movement, your forearm is like a pendulum, hanging from the elbow vertically. The bicep is not working, the tricep is not working. When you depart from that vertical position, when you start to enter increasing degrees of horizontal, that lever starts to increase its load to the bicep. And it increases it most when it's parallel to the ground, meaning perpendicular to the direction of gravity. And everything along the way is percentages thereof. Okay, so if 0% load is vertical and 100% load is horizontal, then you could say, loosely speaking, that a 45 degree angle is a 50% active lever, meaning that 50% of the available resistance is loading the muscle holding that limb at that angle as compared to what it would be if it was horizontal. Okay, so knowing that, if you're gonna do a, a barbell squat and you're observing someone from the side doing this, you see they're, when they're in the standing position, their lower leg, their upper leg, and their torso are all neutral. They're all vertical, parallel with gravity. The guy starts to descend into the squat. He gets to the bottom. He's in the descendant position. You'll notice that his lower leg is only at about a 30-degree angle. Right? It's, it's 30 degrees from the neutral position. It's not even at a 45-degree angle, which would be a 50% lever. If it was a 50% lever, you could still say that that's compromised, right? That would mean the quadricep is only getting 50% of the load it could get if that lower leg was closer to horizontal, but it's only at 30%. All right, for the moment, pause that. Let's look at the femur, the upper leg bone. You say, yes, that is horizontal. So that's good, right? That's in the 100% in the position. And I would say, yes, that's good, but you're applying the load to the femur through the lower leg, right? You're not applying it directly to the femur. You're applying it basically to the foot. Mm -hmm. So the lower leg has to get involved and the lower leg is now doubling under that femur and reducing its length effectively. It's reducing its, call its moment arm, its distance from the pivot to the end of the joint or to where the force is being applied. And too bad this isn't video because I've got some levers that I typically use to show this stuff. But okay, so let's just, so now you've cut the femur length and basically in half. So you have a horizontal, a 100% active lever for the glute but it's half the length it could be. Okay, so both of those facts, the fact that the lower leg is only tipping 30 degrees forward is, is reducing the amount of load, the percentage that you're using um, as compared to what it would be if you were able to use a horizontal lower leg lever. And the upper leg lever is also reduced by the fact that it's being shortened by that lower leg doubling under it. And so you're getting basically half as much load on the glute 30% as much load on the, on the quadricep. And in order to compensate for what you sense 
you don't actually sense them as being reductions, but you sense the ability to squat more. And the reason you can squat more is because of this reduction of load. In other words, you have to squat more to mm -hmm. compensate for these reductions. So now you add more weight to the spine, but the spine gets compressed the more you, the more you load it. And that's not a positive, especially since the spine isn't perfectly straight, right? And when viewed from the side, it has that curve in it, which is kind of like an accordion. The more you push it down, the more those bends um, get exaggerated. Well, chiropractors and PTs go, oh, that's a positive for our business. That's how we get all our yeah, customers. Yeah, they love it. So you they're going to hate me. I'm going to get hate mail from them. Um, and, then, and then, of course, the upper, the upper torso, the torso is a lever too. So you'll notice, in fact, I just did a screenshot of a guy doing a squat and you can, it's obvious that his torso is leaning farther forward than his lower leg. That means it's more active. It's a bigger percentage active. It's closer to the horizontal than mm -hmm. the lower leg is. And it's a longer lever than the lower leg is, which means he's actually loading his lower back more than the quadriceps. Okay, so just to, just to assign some numbers here. Um, and this is not trigonometry, but it doesn't really matter, as I explained in my book, because what matters is that we recognize what is more than and what is less than, and we can make decisions accordingly. So the way we calculate biomechanics is you say, okay, what's the total weight, the total load? Let's say I weigh 200 pounds. I've got 200 pounds on my back. That's 400 total pounds divided by two legs. That's 200 pounds per leg times first by the length of the quadricep lever, which is the lower leg. So we're talking about an 18 inch lever approximately. <clears throat> 16, 18, I forgot what the number is, but I've got it written down. So you multiply times that number, and then you multiply it times the percent of active it is, times 30%. Okay, so you've got 200 pounds times 16 or 18 or whatever the lower length leg is, um, times 30%. And what you end up getting is about 950 pounds of load per quadricep. Now, if you only knew that, you'd say, oh, that's great. I've got a 200-pound bar on my back, and I'm getting 950 pounds of load on each of my quadriceps. But what you don't know is that if you went over there, held, let's say, a doorway or something, and just did a bodyweight sissy squat, let's do the same math, okay? You are a 200-pound guy, no additional weight, so that's 100 pounds per leg times 16 or whatever the, that, that factor is, times 100% because you let your lower leg get, get fully horizontal, equals 1,200 pounds of load per quadricep, which is significantly more than 950, and you've got nothing on your spine, mm -hmm. right? No spinal compression, perfectly safe, more load on the quadricep. It's important to understand the quadricep only extends the knee. It does not extend the hip. Mm -hmm. In fact, one part of the quadricep flexes the hip, the rectus femoris, but that's only one part of it. And flexing, of course, is opposite of extending. So when you're doing squats, the fact that your gluteus is participating at the same time as the quads does not help the quads mm -hmm. at all. Nor does the participation of the quadricep help the gluteus at all. Each of those muscles are doing their own thing, their own way, in their own little world, they have a job to do, and that's all they care about, right? So when you say, I can get more size when I'm doing a barbell squat than I can a leg extension, there's no logical reason why that would be the case, right? Because the quadricep doesn't know whether it's working all by itself or whether it's working together with 
the glutes and the spinal erectors and everything else. And the fact is, the, each of these two muscle groups, the quads and the glutes, each would be better off with its own separate direction of resistance. But when you're squatting, because it's a compound movement, you're using only one direction of resistance and they have to share it. And because they have to share it, they both get compromised. So if you said to me, how can I take that squat? Let's say I have no weight on my back. How can I take a squat and make it more quad emphasis? And I would say, well, push your, your pelvis forward, lean back and let your lower leg get closer to the ground. Well, guess what you've just done? You've eliminated the glutes. Mm -hmm. You've loaded the quads a lot more, but you've eliminated the glutes. Now, if you went the other direction and I said, okay, well, take out that lean of that lower leg, make it go vertical and do it more like a deadlift. Now you're doing more, more uh, glutes, but you're not doing any quads. A really quick, uh, Doug. So sissy squats, do you consider sissy squats as part of that? Uh, I don't know the device, but where you can kind of plant your ankles into the machine and, you know, kind of do that. Oh, you're talking about sissy squat bench. Uh, yeah, I don't know the name of it. Honestly. Yeah, you I've put your ankles in, in front of the pad yep. and the upper, the, the upper pad goes behind your calves. Yes, the correct. Part of your calves. Yep. Now that's, that is basically a leg extension. Now, okay, so that's not considered a sissy squat, correct? Well, it's uh -huh. called a sissy squat bench. Okay, sissy squat but, bench. Okay. But we, now we're talking semantics. And this is what's interesting is, is, is this is a very three-dimensional subject, right? So a lot of times what looks to be one thing actually isn't. Mm -hmm. So like I, when I say to someone, if you, the, the problem with the squats is that the lower leg is mostly vertical, they go, oh, well, that's bullshit because, you know, when you're doing a sissy squat bench, your lower leg is totally vertical and yet you can totally feel it in the quads. And I go, yeah, but the direction of resistance is completely different. Mm -hmm. It's not straight down anymore. What you've actually done in that sissy squat bench is you've created a pivot at the upper end of your lower leg with that brace that's back there. And by leaning back, you're basically thrusting your lower, your ankle forward mm. up against that pad. In fact, you can literally see pictures of guys doing the sissy squat bench and their foot isn't even touching the ground. Mm -hmm. That means they are not dealing with a vertical straight down direction of resistance anymore. Now it's a rotational direction of resistance, right? And in biomechanics, there's this thing called ground reaction force, which basically means that if you push against an immovable object, it pushes back with an equal and opposite force. Okay, so if you're standing on the ground with a 200 pound barbell, you weigh 200 pounds, that's 400 total. What you're actually doing is pushing against the ground with 400 pounds and it's pushing back 400 pounds. And this is of course semantics to a degree, but if, you were, if it was pushing less than 400 pounds, you would sink. If it was pushing more than 400 pounds, you would rise. Mm -hmm. It's meeting your 400 pounds. And so that ground reaction force, technically speaking, is the direction of resistance, All right? You're just pushing against an immovable object. It's just like a sprinter who's got his feet in the blocks. When he takes out of that gate and he pushes down in a down and back diagonal direction, that block is pushing up in a diagonal direction of resistance. Now, you might say, why does this matter? And I would say it matters for, well, the sissy squat bench proves it, that you're pushing against that ankle pad. And so the direction of resistance is this way against your lower leg, your mm -hmm. tibia, right? It is no longer vertical, close to parallel to the tibia, right? It's a completely different exercise. When you're doing a, a standard sissy squat without that bench, you're still dealing with a vertical direction of resistance. 
You're not changing the direction of resistance. You're not adding another element. But if you're doing, let's say, a, 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 a squat against, the, against a Swiss ball, against the, the wall, right? You've done those, right? You've mm-hmm, seen mm-hmm. those. Yep. You've got your back against the, the Swiss ball. And whether you know it or not, your feet are actually pushing slightly forward against the ground. The traction from your rubber shoe is keeping that from happening, mm-hmm. right? So if the ground was slick with oil, you would just slide right out. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, that's a, that's a diagonal opposite your direction of push. That's a diagonal ground reaction force. That would be the direction of resistance that you use to compare where is my lower leg relative to that to see how active your quadricep is. That's why you can feel that more in your quadriceps than in the glutes because you're actually pushing sort of like a sissy squat bench in a slightly forward direction of resistance. Gotcha. So anyway, the long and the short of it is that um, mechanics, physics, um, is not, when I explain it in my book and I illustrate it, it's fairly easy to understand because I lay it all out. So physics is a component of this thing, but it's also things like, you know, um, what is the ideal anatomical motion for a particular muscle? For example, you say, what's the ideal direction of resist, or, or the, the, the ideal anatomical motion for the bicep? Well, it can only do one thing. It bends the elbow. That's all it does, right? So there's no question about that. But when you're dealing with joints like the shoulder joint, i.e. the pectorals, the lats, the side delta, the front delta, the rear deltoid, now you've got all these variations. And oftentimes we take the wrong one. So if someone says, what's the ideal direction of resistance for the upper pecs? I would say, well, the rule is this. All muscles pull toward their origin. They can't do anything other than pull toward the origin. If I give you a rope, one end of the rope, and I say, you're a muscle origin, and I'm going to tie the other end of this rope, which is a muscle fiber, to a heavy box, and I stand out of the way, and I say, pull the rope, pull, and just pull. That's all you can do is pull, right? That box is going to move toward you. Mm -hmm. It can't move in any other direction. Okay, so when you're up, when the, the, the pectoral fibers that are highest on your sternum contract, they pull your arm in what would be considered a flat bench direction, not an incline direction. Why? Because our arms are connected at the very top of our pectorals. All of your pectoral muscles, fibers, are all below the shoulder joint. Zero percent are above the shoulder joint. So when you move your arms in an incline direction, which is moving them higher than the shoulder, higher than the clavicle, you're basically moving them toward the neck or the chin and there's no pectoral fibers there. So that is not an ideal anatomical motion for the upper pecs. And how did this start? Well, it started, you know, obviously a hundred years ago when people just sort of didn't even process this. They thought, well, maybe the arms are connected to the torso in the middle of the pecs so that half of the pecs are above the shoulder line and half of the pecs are below the shoulder line but they're not, they're all below the shoulder line. Mm-hmm. And you see someone like Arnold or Franco Colombo or someone with good upper pecs and you see them doing inclined presses and you assume, and they've told us that that's what caused it. But you know, they got, they got their pectoral developed mostly from flat presses. They had to, I mean, it's just mechanically, logically speaking, you can't pull in a direction where you're not situated. What's your take on uh, the decline bench actually building your upper chest pretty well? Well, or decline pressing motions in general. 
Yeah, what I recommend in my book is I say that if you're going to do one exercise for the pecs, the most logical thing to do is to move your arms, which is where the insertion of the pecs is, toward the center of your sternum, Mm. which is slightly below your shoulders, right? Why the center of the sternum? Because that's where the greatest percentage of muscle fibers are, right? So a slight decline dumbbell press would be the single best chest exercise because you're moving, you're engaging the most number of pectoral fibers at one time. Gotcha. Now, what I, what I tend to p- tell people is you can move them in a slightly down decline direction and in an extreme decline direction, and it's all good. You can actually see people's upper pecs, not so much the clavicular pecs, but the pecs that are attached to the sternum. They're all working. When you're doing a flat press, you can see the clavicular pecs working more than the highest fibers on the sternum. Hmm. Yeah, and really quick, uh, Doug, not to kind of deviate a little bit away from the conversation, but to add a little bit more validity to your points here, I feel like a lot of people uh, just ignore these facts. And once again, to put a little bit more context into it, we're dealing with the average, you know, American that has like a sedentary job, they happen to be overweight, and literally their goals are like health and aesthetic oriented. So kind of keep that in mind, as you mentioned that earlier in the show as well. And I mean, look at the look at the health of the average person. I'm just going to read through here. So, like, average American is about 25% body fat. So that's that's obese, basically, for an American male. Uh, the HAQ score, which is like a health assessment questionnaire through the Czech uh, Czech Institute. I mean, the typical person has a lot of gut inflammation, has a lot of adrenal fatigue. They're exhausted, so they might not do well at neurologically demanding exercise, such as the squat initially. Uh, you know, they have high levels of depression, anxiety, various musculoskeletal issues. Uh, a lot of people have like an undiagnosed disc bulge as well. So you have to take that into consideration. And I feel uh, like, for example, through study on PubMed 30, 48, 47, 38, uh, people can look it up. They did like a metabolic analysis on adult on adults in, in the US. And 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. And the standards they used for that tests were just so low. It's like, it's basically, you're alive. Are you alive? Okay. Then you're metabolically healthy. If you're not, then you're not. And 88% of people couldn't even match those like very, like very, very basic standards in my opinion. So the 12% that did match that aren't necessarily optimized. They're not like Olympians. They're just kind of just living basically, but 88% of, so, so basically what I'm saying, and, you know, taking into consideration, a lot of people have extremely poor posture, upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, flat backs, way back, military neck, et cetera, et cetera, from being extremely sedentary and just non-health conscious overall. And you do, see, you do see a lot of people going to the gym like that. And what do they do? They give you like five minutes of instruction on how to do Olympic lifts that typically take years to master. I mean, in like Eastern European Olympic programs, they have kids just lifting broom sticks for years and years before they even touch like a weighted barbell just to set up those engrams, to set up that mind muscle connection, those patterns where it's instinctual. And what I'm saying is before you put a person into those, you have to do like at least a three to six month base conditioning program where you address all of these issues to make sure a person is even healthy enough to do something as complicated as a barbell squat if they even need to do it because that's another question it's like where can you get the most bang from your buck with having the least amount of risk sure you can get you can get injured doing you can get injured going for a walk outside you know by twisting your ankle on a curb Mm -hmm. or something like that anything's possible 
But if you look up like injury histories in the gym, especially with the general public, like where is it mostly happening? It's happening on the barbell back squat, barbell deadlifts, uh, flat bench press is a big one for shoulder injuries, for example. Uh, I mean, there's so much more we can go into just this conversation again, but I feel like a lot of times uh, when, when people just automatically prescribe, you know, like, oh, the barbell back squat is great. Sure, it could increase your performance on certain tasks, but it actually could decrease your performance as well on other tasks. Like, for example, hockey players don't need to be doing a, a, you know, a butt to the ground barbell squat. They're just like a lot of people just don't need that. And I feel the general population, they could also fall into those categories. It's like, do you really need to take the risk by, by loading the bar? And even if you do, you know, you have to ask yourself, is it even appropriate for my sports or activities? Or can I get like, once again, like you said, like more bang for my buck? with a lot more, with a lot less risk, but just doing something else that's more applicable to what I'm actually uh, trying to accomplish. Because I feel like even in our situations where you're obviously like a very successful competitive bodybuilder, you always have to operate like at a pretty high threshold. And the closer you get to all of those positive failures on every single set, you know, just the more risk you get, you get those micro movements. If it's under a lot of load, it could lead to, to injury, but that's just, you have to operate like roughly around that area to have any chance of building like a, a, com a competition ready physique. And in my opinion, what ends up happening, even if the person is doing a lot of this back end work is especially like on the barbell back squat or barbell deadlift, there's so many variables that have to be 100% all the time for you to do those correctly, safely all the time, that just over a long enough time span, chances are you're gonna get injured during those exercises. If you're very knowledgeable and take really good care of yourself, the injury might not be catastrophic for sure, but it will happen. I don't know what your opinion is on that. Well, you know, look, <laughs> it's a really, really unfortunate situation that's going on right now globally in the fitness industry. I mean, there is just 99.9% .9 misinformation out there, almost total misinformation out there. You go to a gym, you, you, you're assigned a trainer. The trainer is making 12, 15 bucks an hour. The trainer is 22 years old. How much context can a 22-year-old have on long-term training? How accomplished, how, how educated is that? What ends up happening is in, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, just a, it's the perfect storm you get clubs that are interested in their bottom line. They market their trainers as being scientifically educated when in fact they've only certified them in house. And then they do this marketing thing that looks glitzy and convinces members that they're gonna get a really sharp trainer. And the trainer only cares about paying his rent. He's not making a million bucks, right? He's not well-educated. I mean, being well-educated takes decades. Mm -hmm. right he's all of two decades maybe the most three decades old right and he hasn't spent all of that studying right so there's there's a lot of things wrong with the fitness industry um so let me just take a few jabs at this thing when you're talking about an olympic lift you're talking about an athletic event that is not a strengthening move i mean you could loosely call it that but it is meant as kind of like a gymnastic thing right? It is an event. It's like a, essentially a backflip, right? It requires coordination and timing and precision and 
That is not what the average consumer needs to get healthier and stronger, period. Deadlift, one of the worst exercises you could possibly do. Keeping in mind that what I said before about all levers that are horizontal when you're dealing with free weight, um, all levers that are horizontal are maximally loaded. So what would be maximally loaded when you're doing a deadlift, the erector spinae? The spine is made up of small bones, vertebrae, right? So when you load them, when you front load them like that, right? The tendency is for the back to round, mm -hmm. right? So you need your erector spinae to keep your back arched. So someone would say, well, the deadlift is good for the posterior chain muscles. And that sounds really technical. It sounds almost medical, posterior chain. Well, guess what? The posterior chain muscles are basically the erector spinae, the glutes, the adductors, and the hamstrings, period, right? So the question is, if I load my glutes optimally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overload the erector spinae. So that means in order for me to protect my erector spine and therefore my spine, I have to underload my glutes, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And if you, if you work your glutes over there and your hamstrings over there, you're going to get, and you do your erector spine with dynamic work instead of isometric work, which is what's happening when you're doing a deadlift, you're keeping your spine rigid. And so the erector spine, you're holding that position, but they're not doing what we do with all of our other muscles, which is to extend and contract, right? That's the better way to work the erector spinae. So you can work each of those three muscle groups better separately. And then when you need them to work together, they can and do very well. It's not like they have to be strengthened at the same time. In order for them to work at the same time, if you're going to help a guy carry a couch upstairs, right? So it, 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 all these things are rhetoric. These, it's been handed down mm -hmm. through the ages by quote-unquote strength coaches. And once upon a time, less so now, but still much more than this is, is practical, strength coaches are revered as if they're some kind of, you know, God of some sort. They don't understand biomechanics. They don't understand the physics involved in these exercises. They don't understand reciprocal innervation, bilateral deficit, active insufficiency. All of these things play a role in how productive an exercise will be for your muscles. Now, there's another element, which is the psychological component. You mentioned the guy who's stressed out. He's got a couple of kids. He's trying to keep the bills paid. He's getting fat. He thinks he's got to go to the gym just to maintain his health. He goes and he does deadlifts and overhead presses. Now he's straining his spine and his shoulder rotators and his super, his super spinatus tendon, impingement syndrome and all that. And then he ends up with an injury. Mm -hmm. So now you, like you said, you've added one more thing for this guy to worry about on top of everything else, on top of the fact that a lot of these compound movements like a pull-up, for example, which is body weight or nothing, right? Unless you've got some assistant device. Um, you know, I always tell people, if I said to you, we're going to do a flat dumbbell press, there's only one pair of dumbbells on that rack. It's a pair of 60 pound dumbbells, go get them. And you go get them and all you can do with them is three reps. Well, guess what? That's not a good exercise given the circumstances. If that's the only weight you can use, then that's not a good exercise. Mm -hmm. If you have an appropriate weight, it's a great exercise. But pull-ups is not a good exercise for several other reasons, but primarily because you can't choose the weight you want. So here's the guy who's reading, I won't mention any names, one of the leading men's fitness magazines. And some bozo in there says, 
if you're an average Joe, you should be able to squat your body weight. Mm. If you can squat one and a half times your body weight, you're golden. I like those blanket statements all the time. Those are my favorite. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I weigh 200 pounds. <laughs> and the idea of putting a 200-pound barbell on my back to work my quads in a way that would be inferior than other ways that I could work them is ridiculous. And, and I'm not an average Joe. So the average Joe cannot put his body weight on his back. Now he's read this thing in this magazine and he feels now inferior. He feels like he can't, he can't even meet basic standards. He wants to be golden. That would mean a 300 pound squat. He figures he'll never be golden, right? So these are the kinds of stupid, and there's no other way to say it, stupid statements, declarations, rules that the average consumer is exposed to. And then they have to sort of figure things out. It's, it's just not, it's just not right. You know, I was, uh, you know who uh, Dave Palumbo is mm-hmm. and you know who Lee Priest is. Yeah, of course. Lee Priest is the man. So, right. So, <laughs> so they were talking about Doug Brignoli and they were talking about how Doug Brignoli recommends leg extensions and sissy squats for quadriceps instead of barbell squats. And Dave Palumbo, you know, who's very polite, he said, well, all I know is that when I squatted 600 pounds, I had 33 inch legs. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a fair statement. That is all you know. You don't <laughs> know that there's a better route. Yes. Right. It's That's like saying, I know that when I went to so-and-so location, I took this particular route and I got there. Well, guess what? There was another route over there and another route over there. And those were smoother, drier, mud-free mm-hmm. roads. Right. And they could have gotten to the same destination without the wear and tear, without the negative psychological abuse that we sometimes put on ourselves. And by the way, I get a feeling your, your audience is more uh, intelligent, more sophisticated. You're talking to a muscle head. Mm-hmm. The muscle head said, oh, no, no, no. For me, it's all about suffering. For me, it's all about working as hard as I can until I puke. Well, that's not a very intelligent approach. Mm-hmm. First of all, there is such a thing as overtraining. It would be ridiculous to think that the harder you work, the more your gain will be. Right? Yeah, there I guess is, my, yeah, sorry to interrupt. To yeah, I guess my one thing is like, okay, like you had a great physique in your 20s, you know, or maybe your early 30s, but a lot of times you look at these guys in their 50s and they're like a complete wreck, you know? I highly doubt they would honestly be able to answer with the amount of pain they're under like every single day. I highly doubt they'll be able to answer honestly that it was worth it, you know, that it was worth it. Well, if they don't know there was another way, they would say, if that was the only way to do it, then it was worth it. Like Ronnie Coleman, of course, you know, has been asked that question. Was it worth it? Right. And, you know, he's basically a cripple now. He can't walk mm-hmm. without crutches. He's in a lot of pain. You know, he, he's invested a lot in what he got. And he's pretty much known as, as the biggest ever Mr. Olympia winner. Right. So he would say, my only regret is that I didn't do five more reps. Right. Well, that's that's the, you know, the comic book superhero thing to say. Right. And a lot of the people that are of that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. They love that. They love that. Right. You know, a lot of times you look at these and they're not so much available now when they were in print form, these bodybuilding publications, you would see these you would see block drops of blood on the page, mm. right? And, and you see these supplements called nitro and you know, it's all about explosive. It's, it's that mindset 
that a lot of the, the guys that are really, really musclehead oriented rather than, you know, science oriented. And by the way, they're not, you can get a fantastic physique using science. And I'm not saying you don't have to work hard, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying, in fact, I just wrote an article called redefining heavy lifting. So rather than saying heavy lifting is a 600 pound squat, I say, no, no, heavy lifting is you doing an exercise that limits you to four to six reps with as much effort as you can muster for that exercise, never mind how much weight it is. If you're doing leg extension, tricep extensions, whatever it is you're doing, if you're using a heavy enough weight that limits you to four reps, that's heavy lifting. It's a level of effort mm-hmm. rather than a number. But you know, we live in a society where everyone's trying to be better than everybody else. And they're trying to post uh, you know, a video of them doing a 1,000 pound, 45 degree angle leg press. That's not gonna build your quadriceps. In fact, I saw one video where a guy doubled his knee back the other direction mm-hmm. with a thousand pound leg press. I mean, that's just huge amount of risk, partial range of motion. Your lower leg is still mostly parallel to the direction of the sled's movement. So you're only getting a fraction of the actual weight you're using on your quads. You're not fully extending your glutes. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. I'm curious, have you ever been confused by the labels in the grocery store? In Yevgeny's book, he demystifies the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. He also covers how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and other related topics. It's a beautifully illustrated, non-technical read that comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning materials. Jump on Amazon and check out the book titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trefkin. Now let's dive back into the podcast. And I feel, yeah, I feel a lot of people also ignore how long it takes for biological adaptation to occur. I mean, for your end plates to be able to kind of sustain heavier and heavier loads. I mean, it could, I mean, of course it varies from individual to individual, but it could take years and years and years. And a lot of times the people you see setting these numbers are like super genetically gifted too. So by like an average person thinking they could keep up with that kind of level of genetics, even if they're like a walking pharmacy, it's just not gonna happen, you know? It's just not worth doing. Even if your end plates were solid, you know, it's just not the cost and the reward don't make sense. It's like saying, I can sell you that house over there for three times more than I could otherwise sell it to you for. You wanna buy it at three times the price? Why would you want to do that? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the scale that I was going to show you, well, I'm going to, it's even though it's an audible, yeah, I'm going yeah. to show it to you anyway. Yep. All right, Doug, yeah. So give it a second, Doug. He's going to go grab uh, something to, to kind of like explain. Okay, so for the audience's sake that, that doesn't see this, what I have here is a scale. And the scale has um, a pivot in the center and a six inch lever on each side, right? And at the end of each lever, there's a basket, right? And the six inch levers are not parallel to each other, okay? They're both angling down about, it looks like there might be about 20 degrees, but they are both at the same angle, 20 degrees, six inches long, no weight in the baskets, okay? So now I've got these little weights right here. I'm going to drop one here. I'm going to drop one on the other side. And of course you can see it's balanced. So what we're indirectly saying here is that 
a six inch lever at that angle with that weight is equivalent to a six inch angle with a lever at that angle with that weight, right? So we're looking at something that's called a moment arm. And the moment arm is the distance between the pivot and the weight. And in this case, it's the same. Same moment arm, same, uh, same weight. Now I'm gonna take a second weight. I'm gonna drop it into one basket, but not the other one. And we can see that the scale on the left has gone lower. The scale on the right has gone higher. So now what we're saying is this, a six inch lever at this angle with two weights is equal to a six inch lever at that different angle with only one weight on it. I'm gonna add one more weight to this side over here. Okay, so now what we're seeing is that this six inch lever on the left has gone to an angle that is about 30 degrees from the vertical angle. And the one on the right has gone pretty much horizontal. Mm -hmm. Therefore, this moment arm on the left, which is relatively short with three weights, is equal to this moment arm with one weight. Mm -hmm. What is this? This is the angle of your lower leg during squats. This is the angle of your lower leg during sissy squats. Mm -hmm. Three times more weight is required to create the same amount of load as you would get with a horizontal lever of the same length, but with one third the weight. So you don't have to know math. You don't have to know trigonometry or anything else. All you have to do is see that you can get more load with less weight, as long as you've got a longer distance between the pivot and the weight, right? Same thing happens, by the way, with parallel bar dips. People do parallel bar dips for triceps, right? The forearm, is the lever operated by the tricep. So what you would do is you would look at the moment arm. You would say, what is the distance between the elbow and the hand, which is where the force is being applied. And it's relatively short because in the descendant position, the forearm only tips back about 11 degrees. It's a short moment arm, right? The upper arm bone has a longer moment arm, right? Because it's almost horizontal, but it's not being operated by the tricep. It's being operated mostly by the front deltoid and to some degree by the pecs. Okay, so if you were to do some numbers on this, you say, okay, I weigh 180 pounds, 90 pounds per arm, 90 times the length of the forearm, which is about a 12 to one ratio, times the 11% active that that lever is, and you calculate you got about 119 pounds of load on each tricep. But the energy cost to do that was 180 pounds of body weight. Mm -hmm. Now you could lie down on a flat bench with a pair of 20 pound dumbbells. And because those forearms get horizontal, meaning they have a wider moment arm, you get 240 pounds of load on each tricep because 20 times 12 times 100% is 240. Twice the load you got on your parallel bar dips for your triceps, but with only an energy cost, a total energy cost of 40 pounds. Now, sometimes I say this to people and they go, oh yeah, Brignoli recommends that you only do skull crushes with 20 pounds. No, I'm just using that as a number. You can go 30 pounds, you can go 40, whatever you want to use. All I'm saying is you get far more load. You're letting your forearm get horizontal as opposed to keeping it mostly vertical. And then some other person will say, yeah, but when you're doing parallel bar dips, your elbow is straightening, right? So. 
doesn't it not matter whether it's the forearm that's moving or the upper arm that's moving? And I say, well, the direction of resistance is vertical. So you have to draw those moment arm lines parallel to gravity. You don't draw them any other way, right? So the lever arm that's being operated by the tricep is the one that has the shorter moment arm. And, 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 and more importantly, this is another thing that's sort of funny is, um, if you do a tricep extension of any kind, whether it's dumbbells or whatever, or, or tricep with cables, you're gonna feel that rope pulling through your hand. When you're doing parallel bar dips, you're not feeling that pulling through the hand, you're pushing against the hand. So I always tell people, imagine you're sitting in a chair, you've got your arms on, a, on, a, on the armrest, right? And you're pushing down as you would on a, on a dip, right? And you can see what that feels like. Now, push back on it, almost as it, you can, you can feel that your tricep is working more and you can feel what's happening to your hand, right? For every, op, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? If the upper arm is being moved up by the tricep, the lower hand has to push in the opposite direction, right? But more importantly, or more visually, you could even compare that to a sissy squat bench, right? I just said, when you look at a picture of a guy doing a sissy squat bench, his, his foot isn't even touching the ground. Mm -hmm. That's what would have to happen during a parallel bar dip for the tricep to be doing the work. You literally would have to be floating off of the, 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 the parallel bar dip bars and something basically holding your hand, keeping it from pushing back as the tricep extends. And that obviously is not happening. Yeah, there is also, I mean, to your, to your argument, there is also the fact that when you have like a lot of joints moving in any one movement, like uh, for example, a barbell squat, barbell back squat versus like a leg extension, like neurologically, it's just way more demanding. You can't quite focus on any one muscle group as well. Well, and so, there's, a, there's a neurological conflict in squat. And that is that the same, as I mentioned earlier, reciprocal innervation, which means that our body is wired in such a way that we can't have opposing muscles contracting at the same time. Mm -hmm. When you're loading your biceps, your triceps are relaxing. You have no say in the matter. The central nervous system dictates that. It sends what's called a relaxation synapse. You can look this up. I mean, there's, there's, there's illustrations of the relaxation synapse being sent to the tricep because the bicep is being activated. So when you activate the glutes, that's a hip extensor. The hip flexors are relaxing one of which is the rectus femoris, which is part of your quadricep. It's the only one of the four quadriceps that crosses the hip joint. The other three only cross the knee joint. The rectus femoris crosses both joints, right? So it is also a hip flexor and it shuts off. That's about 20% of your quadricep. So it, it's sort of foolish to be doing an exercise that, that literally shuts off 20% of your target muscle as you're compressing your spine with all of this effort, right? So now you'll hear someone like Brad Schoenfeld or Chris Beardsley say that, you know, EMG studies have shown that the rectus femoris is mostly inactive during compound leg movements. Therefore, it is suggested that you supplement your quadricep workouts with a leg extension or a sissy squat. Why not just do the leg extension or sissy squat? It works all four doesn't only work directly, it works all four parts of the muscle. Why would you supplement it, right? So now someone would say, ah, but you know one of the reasons why the squat is good is because it's safer on the knee. And it's safer on the knee because you're co-contracting the hamstring and the quad. 
co-contraction is a myth because of reciprocal innervation. You cannot do activate the knee extensors and the knee flexors at the same time. Now, yes, it's true that the hamstring crosses the hip joint and also functions as a hip extensor. And under normal circumstances, it would be activated. But as soon as you load the quadricep, the, the uh, hamstring shuts off and it's been demonstrated. Now there's a, um, there's a, somebody brought up this thing. It's called, um, forgot what the guy's name was. Um, uh, he, he had a dilemma. This was back in the 1800s. This was before reciprocal innervation was discovered. And he was thinking to himself, cause he was, he was uh, a, a biologist. And so he understood anatomical function and he could see that there was hip extension and knee extension happening simultaneously during a squat. And so he thought, well, hamstrings are involved in hip extension. How is it possible that a person can successfully squat if the hamstring is trying to bend the knee while the quadricep is trying to extend the knee? You would, lo you would lock up, right? You would have two muscles pulling on the joint in opposite directions. What he didn't know yet was that reciprocal innervation shuts off the less important muscle. In other words, the hip can extend without the, the hamstrings, just by the glutes and the adductors, but the knee cannot extend without the quadricep. So you can't shut off the quadricep because the hamstring is trying to work, otherwise you'll fall. So the body knows what it can afford to spare. It can afford to spare the hamstring. It cannot afford to spare the quadricep. So it shuts off that. So therefore it is no safer than leg extension. What's your take on kind of like the body functioning and like integration versus isolation? I guess like one could argue like, oh, you know, doing a lot of these isolation type movements kind of could neurologically mess you up long-term because it trains your body to just like fire certain muscle groups with the exclusion of others. But with any kind of like, quote unquote, like primal pattern movement, like a lunge, your body requires basically the co like basically the function of the entire body in one way or another to accomplish. That is, that is the, I guess you could say the marketing uh, line to functional training, right? And, and, and the suggestion of course, is that if you work your muscles in isolation, that they become spastic, that they don't know how to work together later, that if you strengthen them separately, mm. that they can't work together. I've been training in isolation for the last 20 years. I'm fine. I can play basketball. I can swim. You know, I, I, I'm athletic um, when I need to be. I've mm -hmm. never in my life, and by the way, it's never been proven. This, this idea that you would make the statement that functional training is required for integration, that's theoretical. It's never been demonstrated. They never said, you know, we took two groups of people, a thousand people in each group. We trained this way, this group this way, that group that way. And we found that the people that worked in isolation were totally spastic. They couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't get their muscles to work together when they needed to because they had worked them all separately, individually in the gym. That's never been the case. And by the way, balance training has never been proven. Mm -hmm. You know, you have all these people standing on one leg as they're doing a, a dumbbell curl or standing on a BOSU ball or standing on a wobble board. And the, the theory is that your body is learning how to coordinate all of these things and that you're going to be better off for it, right? Well, guess what? You're not. Not only is instability compromising your ability to work your target muscles, right? But in addition to that, 
there's, there's never been a study that has, that has ever shown that people can function better on day-to-day -day life because they did things standing on one leg or on a wobble board. You are actually training proprioceptively. You are skill learning. You are learning to do this thing out of balance or out of coordination, I should say, and you are learning how to coordinate it. And when you get, you get better and better at it, you think, oh, this is good, I'm making progress. Well, yeah, you're making progress toward that particular skill. Now, if you're a surfboarder or a skateboarder or something that requires a similar movement where the ground is moving, great, that could be useful. Your body has learned to maneuver to the minus adjustments of, of the ground. But when you're standing on solid ground, it's useless. Yeah, and that goes, back, yeah, and that goes back to exactly like what we both hinted at in the beginning, context is so important. And you first yeah. have to specifically identify like what exactly you're trying to achieve. And if your goals are just like health and aesthetics, and once again, your only kind of like functional movement is getting up and standing up or getting up and sitting down at a desk for eight hours a day, you know, there, there are just like, in my opinion, safer alternatives than like, for example, doing like, especially barbell back squats and deadlifts, yeah. especially when you take into consideration. I mean, if the coach doesn't talk their client out of sitting all day, you have the problem of passive tissue creep. I mean, people sit all day and then, yeah. uh, you know, the nucleus material kind of gravitate more towards the posterior elements of the spine. Then they go like right after work of sitting for eight to 10 hours. They're actually moreover sitting for probably 10 to 12 hours a day. If you count like sitting to work, sitting when they're eating, uh, sitting at work all day, sitting yeah. when they're driving to the gym after work. And then they go do like a squat lift at a CrossFit gym right after. I mean, that's like a disaster waiting you to know, happen. It, like for it, sure. It's somewhat exasperating for me because, because, you know, consumers mean well, trainers mean well. But at the end of the day, what's happening is that it boils down to economics, right? So trainers are trying to distinguish themselves from other trainers, right? They're trying to market themselves to consumers as I'm better than most trainers because I integrate, because I do functional training. I can help you be healthier and better and more athletic, not just look good, right? And that sounds appealing. And the trainer believes it. He's not giving that consumer a lie. He believes it, right? Even though it's completely untested. And when you, when you really dig a little deeper, completely illogical, right? But at the end of the day, he wants clients. He needs to pay his rent. And the industry that certified that trainer that has their annual conventions has them coming back every year to conventions where people do seminars on balanced training and integration and functional fitness and all this stuff, because if they don't have those speakers there, then the industry can't generate continuing profits. Mm -hmm. The trainers go to these things. I, I heard the seminar at the so-and-so convention. It must be legitimate because otherwise, why would they have that speaker there, right? And so they go out there and they teach us stuff. And for the most part, it's nonsense. You know, the, the, the consumer is not gonna be better off for it. In, in my book, I tell this little story. And I say, imagine that this guy named Joe is 40 years old. He was last in good shape when he was in high school, but since then he's just gained weight steadily. He's gotten in worse and worse shape. He's been thinking about going to the gym, but he feels so self-conscious. He thinks he's gonna go there and everyone's gonna be pointing and he'll be the most out of shape guy in the gym. Finally, he gets the courage to go there. 
he goes there. He's a little nervous. He picks up a pair of 30-pound dumbbells. The one exercise he remembers is a flat dumbbell press. So he's on a bench, and he's doing his flat dumbbell press. And a trainer comes along who appears to be interested in Joe's well-being, more so than his paying his rent. And of course, first things first, right? You've got to pay your rent. So that's, you know, that weighs heavily on all of us. So he says, would you like me to show you a better way to do that? And Joe goes, yeah, that'd be great, right? So he says, come on over here. So he takes him over to where a Swiss ball is. Joe takes his 30 pound dumbbells. He gets on the Swiss ball. He's got both feet on the ground and he can see the ball's bouncing and it's moving around, but he can still do it. You know, his head's kind of like holding himself up by the neck muscles. All right, I can still do this, right? The trainer says, that's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is I want you to put one foot on the ground and one foot straight out. So now instead of being a tripod, he's a bipod. One foot, the ball, two dumbbells, right? Mm -hmm. So he says, well, it's definitely more wobbly, but I can still do it. And he might not actually be thinking this, but what he's actually doing is the same thing a guy would do if he's walking, you know, a, a rope across two buildings and he's got the long pole. As long as he's got the pole right in the center and it's equally weighted on both sides, he can do this, right? And the trainer says, no, that's not what I want you to do. What I want you to do is I want you to leave one up and bring the other one down and then alternate first the left one down, then the right one down. And you're as making it he, too tough for this guy, Doug. You know? <laughs> well, as, soon, as soon as he, well, it's, it's, it's a setup. I know you're doing this exactly. It's a setup. As soon as the guy does this, he falls off the ball, mm -hmm. right? And, and the trainer looks at Joe with that look like we found a problem. That you can't do something impossible? You've got, to, <laughs> well, what he would say is you've got a balance problem. <laughs> Joe doesn't know that he doesn't have a balance problem. Uh -huh. Joe thinks, it's been so many years since I was in high school. I'm, I feel like a clod. It probably is me. Probably everybody else can do it and I'm the, the idiot who can't, right? And so the trainer says, come on up, gives him a lighter weight, let's say 20s instead of 30s, which is better, right? But then he still has to bring it closer to the center of his body to not have it be so far out that it pulls him to the side. Obviously what he's done now is he's reduced the load on his pecs. First by reducing the weight, then by reducing the length of the lever, right? So if Joe is smart enough, he might say, well, it seems like I'm getting less pectoral work now. Um, what's the trade-off? And the trainer says, core. And Joe goes, what's core? Oh, it's the center of your body. It's like you wouldn't build a house without a, found a solid foundation, would you? It's like the core is nothing like a concrete slab foundation, okay? The core is the rectus abdominis, the erector spinae, the internal and external obliques, that's your core, right? Those muscles each have a separate direction of movement. You're not gonna work all four of those by doing this off-balance chest exercise, right? So next thing you know, this guy's hiring this trainer for a bunch of sessions, bait and switch. He got him for what he wanted him, right? The, and if Joe continues doing that exercise for a year, his pecs won't be significantly better and he won't be able to apply that skill he learned of learning how to, by the way, he can just roll over to one side on the ball as he's doing this and keep his balance, right? So he, he'd be better off just standing with a solid pulley, both feet on the ground and doing his torso rotation with a pulley instead of doing this isometric, you know, oblique thing with this ball. So the industry is just loaded with pitfalls that people fall into all the time because they don't know who else to trust. This yeah. is who they're supposed to trust. 
Yeah, and I do feel that is often times done on purpose to make a person feel like they need to hire or buy this product or buy that product or whatever yeah, because it's like way more complicated than you think it is. But really, that's the it's nature like, of marketing is like let them believe they have a problem, let them yeah. believe you're you're the solution. And really quick, I kind of wanted to mention you mentioned. Um, Lee Priest and uh, Dave Palumbo, I think uh -huh. mentioning like, oh, I built such big legs uh, doing a barbell back squat, for example, in my yep. day. And I'm not talking about them in particular, but there are so many variables that go into building muscle. It's like uh, not saying anything about them in particular, but okay, like, like what else were you doing at that time? You know, are there like any special supplements involved as yeah, well, exactly. which could basically build size doing a leg press. You can build yeah. super massive legs just with a leg press pretty yeah. much doing anything. Uh, By the way, squat is fine. If you want to do a bodyweight squat, it's perfectly fine. The problem arises when you increase the weight on the spine with the objective to make the quads bigger. Now you're paying yeah. a progressively higher price with a progressively lower reward. Yeah, and a lot of people also, they don't know the, quad is or the, the back squat is primarily a quadricep exercise. They really think it's primarily a glute exercise. But I'm yeah. like, dude, it's primarily a glute exercise when you're like way down towards the ground, like the last one third of yeah. the movement. And a lot of people just don't have the hip flexibility to go way down that low without having like a, like a huge butt wink, you know, which puts yeah. so much pressure on the intervertebral discs of the yeah, lower If you back. go all the way to the ground, you are definitely going to let that tailbone come under. Yeah. And then I'm like, dude, then there's so many better things you can do, like a Bulgarian split squat, for example, or like a lot of the things you mentioned here that don't put so much compressive yeah. penalties Look, on I've that, got on senior citizens. I'll have them do squats to a chair. And sometimes I have to hold their hands. I've got a client this morning who's 92 years old. You know, that's fantastic for him, right? I mean, he's got to he's got to strengthen himself to get out of the chair. So we do squats to the chair. That's perfectly fine. He's not putting a big barbell on his spine. He's not trying to build his quads. How are you? How are you dealing with with all your critics? Because one time I only asked because one time just out of okay, maybe I was trying to be a troll a little bit because I went on a powerlifting form on Facebook yeah. and I was trying to kind of like convince them that you don't need a, a barbell squat for the general population or like yeah. a deadlift. And obviously those are like the staples of their like whole entire existence. I almost got like death threats basically, you know? Oh, I mean, the, the barbell squat is like the Holy grail. It's sacrilegious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a, an Instagram site called squat university, you know? I mean, uh -huh. yep. Yeah. Well, by I the way, that. let me just remind people that Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield endorsed my book. You know, Fred Hatfield had the common sense. He, by the way, he was the founder of the International Sports Sciences Association, hmm. right? So he, he was a science, actually a science guy. He knew that his sport required him to do these very, very risky things for the title of powerlifting champion, not for the title of, you know, most healthy man, most fit man, best quadriceps, best glutes, right? So... Squat is not a great exercise, but you're right. There are some people, look, I, I criticized um, uh, farmer carry, which of course, you know, is also sacrilegious to the CrossFitters mm -hmm. because they believe it's golden. But I say, but your arms are vertical, your forearms are vertical, your upper arms are vertical, your lower legs are mostly vertical, your femurs are mostly vertical, your torso is mostly vertical. You're getting a lot of downward pull on the clavicle. So you're isometrically loading the, the, uh, the trapezius, the upper trapezius. You know, you're working your grip because you've got a horizontal hand here and it's working some of the grip muscles and your calves are working a little because your foot is horizontal. But for the most part, all the muscles that are working are working at a much smaller percentage than they would be 
if mm -hmm. any of those limbs were able to get horizontal. Mm -hmm. So are you out of breath when you're done? Yeah, because you've got all of the muscles in your body working at 5%, 8%, right? And, and it's hard to breathe because mm -hmm. when you put that downward pressure, your diaphragm gets, gets compressed, right? So people think, oh, it's hard to do and it's functional because I carry suitcases at the airport. It's like, look, there's far better ways to get strong. There's far better ways to get fit. Yeah, but true. people, look, I don't care about the hate mail, right? I mean, I, I'm not speaking to the haters. I'm speaking to the intelligent people. <laughs> I'm speaking to the people that hear logic, that hear common sense, right? There's no doubt that a pendulum is neutral when it's hanging vertically. There's no doubt that a park swing is going to stay in that vertical position without it being touched, right? That's almost the exact same position of the forearm, the upper arm, the lower leg, the upper leg, and the torso when you're doing a farmer carry. You know, there's no mystery in this, right? If you want to defend it because you have an emotional attachment to it, fine. Defend it because you have an emotional attachment to it. But don't try to defend it on the basis of saying that, that a lever that's parallel to, to resistance is the same, equally good, as one that's horizontal to, to resistance. Yeah, and I guess to your point is I also, uh, in that powerlifting forum on Facebook where I was kind of getting attacked for asking like an honest question, basically, or bringing up like an honest point, I asked the people that were attacking me if they've ever been injured. And of course, their whole argument was like, oh, it's not the exercise, it's how you do it. And there, is, there is kind of validity to that, of course, in one way or another. But I asked them honestly, like, have you guys been injured? And all of them did say they got injured at one point, but they will be like, oh, because I didn't do this one thing or I didn't do this one. And that brings back to my point in a long enough time frame, especially if you're trying to hit these PRs all the time, or you're really trying to kind of like maintain a, a very aesthetic physique all year round. I mean, just in my opinion, from my observation, also just being a coach for like 14 years now, just injury is almost in inevitable. There's something that's going well, to go inevitable wrong. if you do the traditional exercises that well, well, I'm referring to inevitable. If you kept, if you keep those staple yeah. lifts in your routine as your primary movement, Look, there not was even a video of Lee Priest trying to demonstrate the right way to do an overhead press, but explaining that he can't show it right because his shoulders too are too injured. Yeah. So no, you don't have to convince me. So I totally, <laughs> totally get it. Well, Look, I don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't care who gets mad. We get tons. I could show you tons of emails from people that say you've changed my life. No, and your book has for the for the listeners. He has a his book is available on Amazon. Plenty of reviews and very very great reviews across the board. So yeah, well, um, I'm only speaking to the people who want to listen. <laughs> well, really quick, let's uh, let's go down just some quick lifts and your best alternative to that lift. Some quick traditional. Okay, lifts. just so, let me just tell you quickly that in 15 minutes I start another podcast. Okay. Let's so do this in. Let's minutes. do this in like five minutes, and then okay, you great. can do any closing statements uh, for your okay. listeners or promote great. any material. Thank you. So, deadlift. What's your best alternative? Well, what I would say is, um, if your objective is to work the glutes, then a better uh, exercise would be the best exercise would be the multi-hip machine, okay. where you can do one leg at a time. But if you don't have a multi-hip machine, you can either do a backward lunge or a version of a of a glute bridge. Okay. How about the let's say a pronated pull-up. A pronated pull-up. Well, the, the, if you're trying to work the lats, the lats um, don't pull straight vertically. They pull from a slight forward angle and they don't pull vertically. They pull at a diagonal. Mm -hmm. So a cable, a one-arm cable pull-in would be the ideal exercise for the lat. Okay. 
And out of all your lifts that you've created, the Brig 20, I believe, which one is your favorite to do? Oh my God, I can't say that. I mean, they're, by the way, the Brig 20, for those who don't know what that is, um, if, you, if you look at these 16 factors that I told you about earlier, and you put each exercise, all of the exercises to that test, you end up narrowing it down to about 20 ideal movements, meaning this is the ideal direction of anatomical motion. This is the ideal direction of resistance. And the best way to do that is with this apparatus. And if you don't have that, here's one or two or three alternatives for it. Um, but, you know, like the overhead press is meant to be a deltoid exercise, but the front deltoid and the side deltoid have very clear functions. The lateral deltoid does lateral abduction. The front deltoid moves the arm to the front. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing an overhead press, just because you can use a heavier weight doesn't mean you're doing what those muscles do best. So, you know, um, uh, you know what you want to do is early phase load and exercise. You want to start heavier and end lighter. So what I tell people is if you're doing the deltoid and you want to get on the ground horizontally and take a dumbbell and start with your arm horizontal and raise it so that the resistance gets lighter at the top and heavier at the bottom. And if you have a cable, better still than do a cable side raise, putting the, the pulley at the same height as your hand in the starting position. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Well, do you, have, do you have any closing statements, Doug, that you would like to just say to listeners or whatever's on your mind these days? Gosh, you know, I, 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 I wish that I could just download everything into the listeners' heads all at once. We're not at matrix level yet. Yeah, you know, <laughs> my, my book is, is about 400 pages, um, and it's just packed with useful, logical, practical information. Um, and so I always tell people, if, if, that's the best, and it's only 70 bucks. Right. That's the, that's the one thing that you can do that will make the biggest difference with the smallest investment. Um, I have a website called Smart Training 365 where we have videos and we have trainer certifications and all that. But even before doing that, I would say the book is the short is the, is the best shortcut. Cool. Well, thank you, Doug. Thanks for thanks for being the show. I, I appreciate you coming down on a Sunday. So I My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank man. you so much, thank you. Eugene, for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Doug. Thank you, guys. Bye -bye. Have a good one. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you've ever had trouble losing weight, or you've lost weight, but still didn't have the ideal body or health you're aiming for, please feel free to reach out anytime and book an assessment. Eugene will work with you to cover your goals in detail, see what's holding you back, and go from there. In the meantime, feel free to check out the countless testimonials on Eugene's website in the link below. In the testimonial section you'll notice everyone has various backgrounds, are of all different ages, and all have had different challenges in their life, but they all have one thing in common, they were all able to find their health and achieve their ideal body. You're also welcome to add yourself to the Facebook group in the link below. There you'll have access to the live videos that Eugene does weekly on Sundays and other helpful content. Thank you again for tuning in.